I remain on a mission to make sure that people don't misunderstand a side effect of the medication as a symptom of the Alzheimer's disease. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiver consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and a frequent presenter at caregiver conferences and webinars. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. You know I won't forget your wine, my sweet. I appreciate that. You know, prior to and during our caregiver years, we didn't really understand or even think about brain health. We pretty much had to learn little bits here and there, and there was not one place to find information. This is true, and geriatric psychiatry is not something that people hear about often. Although often it's coming up more and more um, when we're thinking about people supporting caregivers with somebody with dementia. That brings us to today's guest, and she is the Chief of Geriatrics at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Director of Aging ME, Maine's Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program. She has over 35 years of experience. She promotes healthy, meaningful aging to students, policymakers, health and human service professionals, older adults, and family caregivers. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Susan Weary. Welcome, Susan. Good morning. Thank you so much, Bobby and Mike. And thank you so much for having me on this great program. Um, I was really uh, glad when I received your invitation and uh, to be able to listen to one of your podcasts, and it's a real privilege to be well, here. Well, I, so I am you. so glad that I found you, and when we were originally talking, you know, I said about the impression that I had that people with dementia were being admitted to psych wards more often than they needed to be, and you responded that you thought it was the opposite, that many times people want somebody with dementia to be admitted to a psych ward uh, and it probably isn't necessary. So we can, can we talk a little bit about what behaviors would lead you to believe that somebody should or should not be admitted to a psychiatric ward? Absolutely, and thanks for the question. And just to clarify, I'm, I'm not sure that we aren't on the same page. Um, here's basically what I think. People living with dementia often express their needs through their behaviors. But traditionally, we thought about behaviors as symptoms of an illness, right? Or symptoms of the disorder, say of Alzheimer's disease or dementia due to vascular disease or whatever. And so if you think about behaviors as a symptom, it does two things to your thinking. It says this person needs treatment for a symptom to make it go away and that treatment may be best administered in a hospital. So it sends you down a particular path. Contemporary thinking in dementia care really says not so fast. Behaviors really are expressions. They're expressions of an unmet need, expressions of a want, expressions of identity. Um, And it's not so hard to understand if we think about sometimes our own nonverbal communication. 
When you realize that behaviors are communications, you also realize something very important, which is they're communicating something in the place where they're occurring in the context of a particular dynamic, a particular environment, a particular relationship. So the problem right along with admitting people to gero psych units or looking for uh, hospital-based care is that it removes the person who's trying to tell us something from the environment in which they're trying to tell us and puts them in a foreign environment, if you will, the environment of the hospital. You know, one of the things that I, I really try to teach um, family caregivers, and I see the reactions on the various caregiver Facebook pages and websites, is that most family caregivers don't understand what causes the dementia behaviors. And they become very angry and frustrated and often escalate a situation that if they knew where it was coming from, if they understood what you're saying now, wouldn't reach that point. That's exactly right, Bobby. You know, so many times when, again, I always suggest that people think about it for themselves. When you're feeling really frustrated, if somebody's not understanding you, you might shake your fist, you might bounce a little, you might have some physical animation to express your distress. If the person responds in kind, you have an immediate ex escalation where both parties are getting overly excited, agitated, whatever. Same is true for people living with dementia. So you're absolutely right. You, we can take a uh, situation where a person is exhibiting a distressing behavior and make it worse by our failure to understand that. Now, Bobby, I got to say, that said, I had a very dear friend who died a couple of years ago who won't mind me using her name is Pam, and Pam died with Alzheimer's disease. And her care partner is also a very good friend of mine. And her care partner often admonished me for not understanding just how hard it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to remain patient or to walk away. And I would say, but if you could just step back and take a deep breath. And I think that I learned so much from Pam and Lynn. Um, I learned so much about um, how to often step into the shoes of the care partner, or at least try to. Um, because my my vantage point is usually squarely with the person living with dementia. So um, I think I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that maintaining this equanimity may sound easier than it is. And I don't mean to make it sound easy. I only mean to say that you're right, which is <laughs> <laughs> we can make it worse or we can make it better but a lot is asked of the caregiver. I can definitely speak to where the family caregiver can escalate things because in the caregiving years that we did, I have to say I probably made every mistake that a caregiver can make because I walked into it not knowing anything about what I was going to be living with. I thought my very gentle, introverted father-in-law would thrive in my care and everything was going to be fine. Not realizing the combination of schizophrenia and dementia were going to put me in a world I wasn't prepared for. I did the best I could. I often felt that I failed, 
my husband and the doctors were convincing me that I, I didn't, that I was doing everything possible. But that's very much one of the reasons why I want to talk to you so we can spare some caregivers from making the mistakes that make it harder for everybody. Okay. Well, Bobby, you know, I, I want to say what everybody else has said to you. It's not a failure. Showing up, being there, doing the best we can is really never failing. And like in all of our relationships, it doesn't mean we always get it right, but I, I would like to echo what others have said to you. You know, you asked before, is there ever a time when going to a hospital might be in the service of the person living with dementia? And the answer to that is probably, but not as often as we think. You know, for people who have lived part of their life with schizophrenia and now are living with dementia in the sense of cognitive decline, there may be times when being in the hospital, whether that is to get a better sense of what's going on diagnostically, whether it is to make a medication adjustment, whether it is to be in the company of people who are more comfortable with people with major mental illness. Um, there may be times when it's not clear what is going on for someone, that being in the hospital, if it is a hospital, a geropsych unit that really does um, understand major mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or whether they, um, and also understand cognitive decline that might be associated with those diagnoses. There may be times for that, but here's the thing that I often try to teach people. People living with schizophrenia, people living with dementia are first and foremost people. And that might sound kind of trite, but what I mean by that is simply this. They have good days, just like you and me. They have bad days, just like you and me. And the temptation that we have, I think, as caregivers, as health professionals, is to leap to the diagnosis as the explanation, as opposed to you or I or anybody might get crankier with not enough sleep. You or I might get a little crankier under the pandemic conditions that have us living in social isolation. And the same is true for people living with schizophrenia, people living with dementia, people living with both of them, is that they're going to have bad days, good days, just like you and me. And I think it's helpful if caregivers can remember that, that before zeroing in on the diagnosis, they can just ask human things like, how'd you sleep last night? Looks like you're having a bad day. What's up? Now, the person, depending on their dementia, depending on their um, level of symptoms, say with schizophrenia or something, may or may not be able to answer that uh, in words, but every person can communicate to the other how they're feeling. And so we try to go with that affect rather than going with the diagnosis. That's a tip that I would have. You, you had mentioned about the going into a facility or, or a hospital. And one of the things I've always found discouraging personally is typically when you go into a hospital or a care facility, you drug them. And that, that breaks my heart because instead of trying to understand, we give them a drug and we make them really a living, walking, maybe, talking, maybe, zombie, almost definitely. And it's that because you just strip everything away from them. And it's one of the reasons why they don't like to take the medicine. 
and we ended up with your dad having a psychotic break and being in the psych ward for eight weeks. At that point, they told us he would probably never come out, but eventually he did, and he was with us, you know, several years after that. But that that was uh, a pattern with him throughout his life, with intermittent hospitalizations because he wouldn't take the medication. And anyone who's ever uh, lived with, worked around, or or been friends with people living with schizophrenia know that those drugs are very difficult to take. It really is um, uh, true that even with really careful prescribing, people can feel drugged, feel like zombies. And for people taking certain kinds of medications, may also gain lots and lots of weight and have all kinds of metabolic syndromes. So I think that in the early days of antipsychotic medication, now I've been at this almost 40 years, And so I come to psychiatry and come to Jero psychiatry, like pre-love affair with psychopharmacology. I come to this, you know, pre-Thorazine or not exactly, but when Thorazine was coming along. And in the beginning, there was enormous enthusiasm for drugs that allowed people to live more independently. And that's absolutely true. I'm not anti-medication. But our love affair, I think, with drugs both as a culture and particularly in terms of psychiatric medicines, has led us to a temptation of trying to find a medicine for everything that ails us. And that is particularly true of people with mental illness or people with cognitive decline. So I'm not surprised that your dad, like many others, would be on the medication for a while. It would get rid of the most acute, perhaps, symptoms, the hallucinations, the delusions, the real psychic distress. And people with major mental illness suffer real psychic distress. It's as important as treating as physical distress. But we should not pretend that there is no downside to it because after a while, people, many, many, many people go off their medications, whether they have a mental illness or not. So it's not, it's not so easy, right? Um, and yet for those of us who don't have a major mental illness, when we see somebody suffering, we do want to fix it, and um, and we want to reduce the suffering. And we have some medications sometimes that help with that. But you know, one one of the reasons that I have that I so resist transfers to geropsych units is for the reason that you say, Mike, is that if somebody's in a hospital, that's what people look to do. What is the right drug? And and a lot of people who are in a care facility or even caregivers in the home will say, I don't want to send them there forever just to get a tune-up, just to find the right drug, just to find the right dose, because they don't want to see them suffer. And I get that. But the problem is we don't have good anti-dementia drugs. And so this quest to send somebody for a kind of tune-up misses the point, I think, invariably. And um, so I, um, I hope that when your dad came back from that eight week stay, um, that he did feel better and good for you for being there when he was ready to come home. <laughs> um, he was definitely a challenge, but he, you know, I consider the time that I cared for him is a gift I, I didn't know that I wanted. Um, 
in some ways. And, you know, it definitely put me on this path. Um, he was a, an amazing teacher in the way that he lived, in the way that he um, moved in the mm-hmm. world. You know, very often he would say to us, it don't make sense. Well, it certainly doesn't. A lot of times it didn't make sense to me either. Now, and again, you can correct me, there does seem to be a tendency when somebody with dementia gets becomes aggressive of giving them one of those antipsychotic drugs. Oh, yes. <laughs> there is a tendency. And, and as you probably know, um, back in, in 2012, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, known as CMS, basically said enough is enough. Because as early as 2005, there was a black box warning telling prescribers, when we use these medications, antipsychotics, we increase the risk of stroke, we increase the risk of death. New black box warning came out and said, we increase the risk of pneumonia. And then new studies came out and showed that not only do the antipsychotics have those high risks in terms of death and stroke, they also accelerate cognitive decline. And so it was a little mind boggling how sales of antipsychotics just kept going up and up and up. So CMS finally said enough already, let's create this national partnership to improve person-centered dementia care and see if we can't reduce the use, the inappropriate use of antipsychotics. And it was a reasonably successful campaign for the first uh, several years all states were put on notice to start addressing it. Now, as we have gone on, this issue of aggression, Bobby, is the one that stymies a lot of people um, because it scares you. Aggression is scary and people can hit and strike. And unless you learn how to deal with that or to preempt it, you can see very. Um, you can see how distressing the situation would be, both for the aggressor, who is terrified because aggression is a fear-based behavior. Um, you can see how you'd want to use medication in that situation, and it is the one situation where medications may have a short-term application. So if you look at the literature on this, basically what it says is, look, if you truly have done everything, if you truly have analyzed the aggressive behavior, if you really have understood this, the, um, the communication, if you've really eliminated all possible triggers and the person's aggression is putting others at risk, them at risk, or risk of losing the home that they want to be in, then a short course of a low dose of an antipsychotic is completely appropriate. But you can see there are a lot of ifs till you get to that point. <laughs> yes. and, um, and they all need to be tried. And more often than not, they work, but sometimes they don't. The other thing that happens is that, and this is the one that I always stress at the medical school, is that once people start a drug, excuse me, they find it very hard to stop. And so once you get on an antipsychotic, there is a fear among the caregiving, either staff or family members, that the behavior is going to come back. And so people never want to take people off of medications. That, again, is why the regulators have said, sorry, you have to. 
there is a required gradual dose reduction, but it's always anxiety provoking. So it's kind of better never to start if you don't have to, um, because stopping is equally challenging. Um, if, I, if I may, Bobby, I have a feeling I'm talking too much, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it always happens. But if I may, um, I would like to just um, have your audience understand something really important about antipsychotics that I think uh, doctors, nurses, um, uh, and others um, often miss. And that's a, a very specific side effect of antipsychotics called akathisia. Do you teach about this, Bobby, in your caregiving course? I, I may, but I don't know the okay. term. So <laughs> explain to me what yeah, that is. <laughs> I sure will. You may already teach about it. So akathisia is this profound motor restlessness in which oh, people yes. absolutely cannot sit still. So a lot of what we call wandering um, is really driven by the medication. Now, akathisia is something that we saw in people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, people who were prescribed drugs like Thorazine or Haldol or Prolixin or whatever. Um, and Roger had all I of bet. those at one time yeah, or another. And back in the day, we caused a lot of akathisia. And we didn't recognize it as a side effect of the drug. So what happened was, is that people would get agitated and literally stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. They could not, it wasn't that they weren't willing to sit still, they couldn't sit still. And patients of mine in my early days, I cared for a lot of people with serious mental illness and um, would describe it to me like if you press, if your carburetor was stuck back in the days we had carburetors and you, your engine would be on high rev and you couldn't, no matter how many times you click the gas pedal, you couldn't get it to stop. Another person described it to me as electricity coursing through your body that you can't dispel. It, and so it's awful. People living with dementia who are prescribed antipsychotics who get akathisia are not able to articulate it as well as people with schizophrenia could. And so I think it's missed a lot. And the problem is, when you see someone like that in that state of distress, it's usually called agitation. It's usually called mm -hmm. a behavior. <laughs> and what do people do? Increase the drug. And, um, and what has to happen in that situation, because it's the only way to treat it, is to get rid of the drug. And if the person has been on it a long time, you have to do it slowly. Sometimes you have to give something else, but more often not. There's no like antidote to this awful um, side effect. So it's, um, it happened to my friend Pam when she was in the hospital. And so I remain on a mission uh, to make sure that people don't misunderstand a side effect of the medication as a symptom of the Alzheimer's disease. To maybe shift a little bit, um, I was on the Southern Maine area of the website where it talks about the workshops and events. And I saw an amazing amount of interesting workshops. Now, my question is, can anybody attend those workshops or are they specific to a member of the Southern Maine something? <laughs> or So me, me living in, in Northern Virginia. We would love to have you. We would, okay. Our webinars are open. I think you're, you, I'm not sure which ones you're referring to, but I'll tell you about the ones that 
that I'm associated with, not that I give them all, but that I'm associated with. So we have, um, uh, as Bobby mentioned in the introduction, I'm the director of our Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program, which we call Aging Me or Aging Maine. And, um, and all of our webinars uh, are free um, and open to the public. And if you find the link, we would love to have you. Uh, from time to time, I give webinars that are posted on our website, but I am um, uh, invited by organizations like the Pioneer Network um, who do have a charge for their webinars, but all are welcome. I um, often speak on behalf of the Dementia Action Alliance um, and the Dementia Action Alliance webinars that I've been involved with are free of charge. Um, anything we do from the university is, we do usually make clear whether or not registration is required for our webinars, um, right. but there's no charge right. with that. So you have to, to sign up, but, but that's because um, we just need to keep track of it for our grant funding. And, you know, Bobby, I see your hand up, so I'm going to stop in a moment, but I, <laughs> I feel like I have to say one thing, you know, a lot sure. of us who work in academia or who, um, who have these lovely grants provided by the federal government, describe them to people as free. But I want to be really clear. I get it that they're free because you pay for them with your tax dollars. These are <laughs> publicly funded programs. And so they should be and are publicly available. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, as we get close to the end, I, I wanted to share a, a situation that really shows people how we react to somebody with dementia can escalate. I was listening to this person describe a situation where mom wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. And that happens often. And this woman would kept telling her mother, you're home. You're, you've been here for five years. This is where you live. You're not leaving. And mom kept insisting that she, she was going and they couldn't keep her there. And mom slapped the daughter. At which point the police were called. Mom was taken by force into a hospital. And it was, and, and the daughter was saying, I'm afraid she can't come home anymore. I'm afraid of what she's going to do. She's going to harm me. She, mom ended up in the psychiatric ward. And I, you know, and I was so upset mm -hmm. by this because there, there are ways to deal with, with somebody with dementia who wants to go home. And you can ask them where it is they're going, what it is that they want to do there. Ask them what home looks like because it may not be home at all. It may be this feeling that we have from time to time. I mean, I don't have dementia, but sometimes when things are difficult, I think I want my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I know mom's not coming to help me, but I have that feeling. And I can only imagine that if I had dementia and I was having that feeling, I would want to go where I thought mom was. And it might be a discussion about who do you want to talk to when you get home? And if it's mom, then you can start sharing memories of mom and that kind of thing to keep this from getting to the point where you're afraid to have your own mother in the house. You know, um, I can't improve on that story, Bobby. Um, only to say that, you know, you have learned a great deal, um, uh, both from your father-in-law and your own lived experience and from, you know, what you've been open to learning, right? Because you're absolutely right. We make 
these assumptions, right? That we know what the person is saying, even though we know their problem with language. And I think your example is beautiful. You know, it is when somebody get, opens that door, I want to go home to ask, who will you see when you get there? And sometimes it will be, I need to let the children in, or I will see my mom. We don't know. We don't know in that statement what the longing is for, what the unmet need is, or where it is that the person actually means exactly. that they are going, right? <laughs> and so exactly. the intervention is, in fact, to engage in exactly the ways that you're describing. The other thing that I often suggest that people do, if this, if there is a behavioral communication that you notice occurs repeatedly, maybe at the same time of day, maybe in a particular set of circumstances. Doesn't have to be a bad feeling, could be a good feeling. Do you notice after this uh, happy meal, your mom wants to go home? Maybe it is to see her mother, whatever it is, right? To, to understand that if people provide us with a pattern, then before it even gets to that, I wanna go home anxious statement, you can back up three steps and alter the conditions that might have produced it by preemptively talking about mom. Wouldn't mom have loved this dinner? Wouldn't mom uh, have loved to go for a walk after this meal? Let's go for a walk together. Do you remember that song, mom? Whatever it is, it's exactly what you're saying. As you go with the affect, you go with the feeling, try to see what the person is trying to tell us. And that does stop the escalation. Um, what I think, think happens for a lot of caregivers, and I'd be interested if this has been your experience, is that they wait until it gets to this fever pitch and somebody is hit or yes. hurt before taking um, a more intentional action that might allow people to stay at home. And, and, you know, that's why I do as much outreach as I do. Most of the frustration with family caregivers comes from not knowing how to respond to the yeah. behavior. And hearing it from you and somebody with your credentials, I hope, makes that job for me a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly making the job easier for caregivers. Um, so it's great, the work that you're doing. Well, I certainly got a lot out of our chat today. It was um, very enlightening, and you are an absolute delight to talk to. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And thank you so much for being with us today. I am so thrilled that we got Dr. Weary to, to talk with us today, and I know that our listeners are going to understand why somebody may or may not need to be in a psychiatric ward, what these medications can do, and hopefully we can help reduce the number of drugs these people are taking. Well, not only that, but also help them to take that step back for a second and realize one of the things that she said, and you say many, many, many times, that behavior is communication. And take that step back and understand, okay, what are they trying to tell me? No different than a baby crying. Why is the baby crying? Let me try to figure out what is causing this behavior. So that was one of the, the things that she said that you say more times than probably you, you want to say. <laughs> 
I'll say it as often it needs to be said. Right. You know, it's like dealing with a three-year-old who's having a tantrum. Are they hungry? Are they cold? Are they wet? Are they frustrated? You know, right. what, what's going on? One of the other things I got was, um, and, and I didn't know this, and it was kind of a little bit of an aha, especially when putting A with B and coming up with C, that the antipsychotics create the profound motor restlessness as what I think she said. I don't remember the technical term, but I remember the, the Michael understands it term. But the, <laughs> the profound motor restlessness, and my God, did my dad have that, where he was oh, yeah. always fidgeting. And so there's the A, the antipsychotics caused this. B, he did it. C, it was probably because of all the antipsychotics that he had from the 1940s on through his passing in 2009, that that was kind of a aha moment for me of, of a cause and effect. Well, you know, that's why we do this. We not only educate, we learn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can find more information about Dr. Weary and Aging Me on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show. Go to iTunes or the Roger That Facebook page and post a review. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. It's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that, dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's Liga podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.